Hey, Adventures in Sci-Fi Publishing, Episode 319, Paradise Icon Reading, Part 2. And now, podstructed on a Zeppelin by an apprentice mage and delivered by a rocket ship to a benevolent dragon, Adventures in Sci-Fi Publishing. Welcome to Adventures in Sci-Fi Publishing, your podcast for science fiction and fantasy media. This is Brent Bowen, and today we conclude the second episode in the Paradise Icon readings. This was the convention I attended in Cedar Rapids, Iowa in mid-October, and there was a bit of an unexpected delay. I think most folks, we had kind of warned everybody that I think we were going to do two episodes a month in November and December. And actually, our December schedule might improve, include three episodes. We'll see where we are with that. But I had a bit of a mishap, and I am actually recording this from a makeshift studio because my home studio that I have actually had a little bit of a water problem. So we, we've we had a bit of a, of a delay. But this episode, what you should expect in this, and a couple things to warn everybody about, is one, it's PG-13, certainly, maybe on the fringe of R. Uh, depends on the classification of how many F words or swear words are used uh, to make it R-rated. I think it's one or two, or if it's just used, period. And, but I can't, I can't ever recall. And largely that's based on me. That's my fault, folks. So the reading selection that I chose for my icon reading was probably mm, one of the most explicit uh, readings or pieces that I've written. Not that it's so explicit that uh, it's considered other, anything other than R-rated. That would be the worst case scenario. But anyway... We're concluding the Paradise Icon readings in episode two. I didn't do a very good job. They're in the show notes. But if you look at the Icon episode part one, which is episode 318, the readings in order of appearance were Ransom Noble, Christopher Cornell, Stephanie Vance, and Jim Meeks Johnson. I encourage you, if you haven't listened to that part of the readings go back and listen to those because there are some excellent selections that are certainly publishing worthy as part of that episode. In this episode, and this will conclude the reading series from that experience, and I'll talk about here in a minute what you'll expect to see from us at the end of this year in the beginning of 2016. In this episode, you'll hear from Doug Angstrom, and if I memory serves, I've got this in order of appearance. Doug Angstrom, Shannon Ryan, yours truly, and Catherine Schaff Stump. And so that's there are four readings in in this selection as well. And again, part of the thinking, it, it, even as we were having some conversations during the convention with my workshop group, we were just talking about the editorial process and even joking about creating our own anthology. And I said, what better way? It just, it dawned on me. I, I, I know a lot of the, the works of the individuals that were participating 
they're considered um, professional or neo-professional. So they're right there on the on the fringe of making a dent in the publishing world. I said, what better way to you know, bring to light and bring forward the works of some tremendous authors, uh, but to give you all kind of a snapshot of of that reading experience from the convention. So again, I I've talked about this in the past. In the past, I had a little bit of water damage, uh, um, some plummet minor plumbing issues that kind of flooded my studio. So we've been a, a bit delayed in in this episode. I'm hoping to get those issues corrected this week. So my studio will be back where it needs to be. And we can bring you at least two, if not three episodes in the month of December. And then um, definitely we'll have a strong start to 2016. If you've been missing me and Christy, though, I'll, I'll tell you it's uh, while we've had a bit of a lull here, uh, you can find Christy and me other places and and have a chance to uh, hear what we're what we've been up to and see us in a in a, a bit of a different light. This show is definitely more family friendly, and uh, I'm going to be a forthcoming guest over at the Grim Tidings podcast, which is you know is more probably on the edgier side, and they allow me to swear over there a little bit more, and then Christy. Uh, really cool. She's serving as a guest host over at the Functional Nerds. So I definitely encourage you to go see what she's been up to over at the Functional Nerds. And speaking of Christy, Christy has been doing yeoman's work for for our show. And just to let you know that, you know, that whole grim tidings mentioned that does not portend anything about the future of our show, even though we've had a bit of a lull, we'll be finishing off 2015 and starting off 2016 very strongly. And so you can expect, and a lot of these are already recorded episodes with Dave Barra, Aaron Lindsay, Jordan Stratford, and Faith Hunter. Those have already been uh, recorded. And then Christy and I have time set aside with Peter Kleins here in the next couple of weeks. So end of 2015, beginning of 2016, we'll be finish, finishing off uh, very strongly uh, with, the, with the show. So apologize for the a bit of a lull. In fact, today, I know not everybody celebrates this, but today I'm actually recording this on Thanksgiving Day, the morning of Thanksgiving Day, because with the makeshift studio, I had to wait for the family to clear out of the house uh, to make this to make this happen, uh, to get you guys an episode. And with that being the case, uh, I know, again, we've we've been a little slower with the episodes, but and this being a year uh, with some change earlier on in the year with, you know, Sean handing over the show to to me and Christy. I want to thank you all so much for your continued listenership and your participation in the show. And uh, several of you, you know, as we've been going through the 2015 Hugo uh, debacle as well, a lot of the kind words and encouragement that you all have sent on to us. And and this show ultimately really wouldn't be possible uh, without you uh, showing some measure of support. Uh, I guess Christy and I could talk to each other in a closet, but it wouldn't make much of a difference. Although we would enjoy the conversation with one another. But I want to thank you. And I also want to thank all of the contributors that we've had to the show. 
to make this a real uh, possibility for us to continue in the way that we've done so. So everybody from uh, Rob Matheny, who's the audio engineer, Brian Casey, who's going to be coming on board and contributing as an audio engineer, Christy, Greg Palachi, uh, John Dodds, uh, the reviewers, Timothy C. Ward, Ben Arzate is one of our uh, reviewers. I would encourage you to go uh, read his reviews in the show. I want to thank them as well. Byron Dunn, who's come on to do the weekly books, uh, new release digest. Byron does a lot of fun or has a lot of fun with those weekly uh, digests and new releases. And you guys should definitely check those out. But anyway, next episode, you should expect both me and Christy will get a little bit deeper into a, a discussion of what's been taking place, uh, get a little bit more into her guest stint at Functional Nerds. But in the meantime, I'd encourage you to stop over there, you know, after you listen to the Icon episode two readings. And until next time, everyone take care. This is from the uh, opening chapter of my novel in progress, which uh, uh, some of you heard last year. Uh, so this is the form that's going out to beta readers right now. Kira White stood alone in the midst of the neutral carpet, beige walls, and bought by the pound corporate artwork, preparing for the first phase of a struggle that would probably end in death, either hers or, more likely, that of her opponent. The ride through the streets of Des Moines from her apartment, the small clump of autograph seekers, and the security check at the arena entrance were all behind her. The door to waiting room number three at the Central Iowa Dueling Arena stood before her, and the clock above it showed she had a full 10 minutes to pull it before she faced default for failure to appear. She used the time alone to gather herself. She timed her breath by count, using twice as many seconds to release a lungful of air as she had used to take it in. In response, her heart rate slowed and her muscles relaxed, just as her first acting instructor had promised, the technique calmed the jitters before any kind of performance. She checked the handset at her belt, pushed her short cropped blonde hair into place, adjusted her cloak, and changed the angle of her hat. She considered removing her gloves, but decided that that was better done inside. The operation would furnish an opportunity to demonstrate how quick and precise her hands were. She focused on her role, visualizing the way she wanted her opponent to see her. She spoke softly, but intently, words audible only to herself. I am death. I am terror. I am blood. The muscles in her face tightened, her eyes narrowed, and she drove any remaining softness from her appearance. Subtle cues, to be sure, but that was the essence of acting, a series of small changes that create an overwhelming impression. She glanced at the clock. It was time for the most important show of the day, for an audience of one, and she was ready. She gave the handles on the waiting room's double doors a long, smooth pull. She was gratified as the air wafting out of the room lifted her cloak, making its crimson interior highlight her outfit. She wore a black leather jacket over a red blouse, the latter exposed an explosion of ruffles at the throat, all topped with a black fedora. As expected, her opponent was already inside. He looked up as she made her entrance. His dress matched what she expected from his job and the other information in his public profile. He wore a pressed white shirt and plain black slacks, 
though both were discount brands. He also wore a battered baseball cap, which definitely didn't go with the rest of the outfit. He looked slightly younger than his 28 years, probably because he had a round face and a scraggly red beard. He was pinned between armrests in a chair a little too narrow for his overweight body. His personal effects bag sat at the floor at his feet. Kira strode past, refusing eye contact and allowing only a glimpse of her face in profile as she made her way to the receptionist's desk at the back. She silently cursed the recent ruling barring anyone except the opponents themselves from the waiting room. An opponent's friends and family could be her best allies in a campaign to make him abandon the fight. The room featured the same office plan decor as the hallway, right down to the conventionally pretty, professionally dressed receptionist seated behind the receiving desk. Kira removed her gloves and confirmed her identity with her thumbprint, another thumbprint to acknowledge she had read and understood the rules of engagement, and the preliminaries were complete. Your second is on the field, Ms. White. The receptionist's voice was as nondescript as her, as her clothing. Kira nodded in acknowledgement. Diana was seeing to preparations on the field. Kira would see to events in the waiting room. With a fluid practice motion, she placed her bag on one of the waiting room chairs and draped her cloak over it. She placed herself in the chair next to her things. Once seated, she pulled her handset from her belt clip and checked the time. She had a little more than 30 minutes before they were called to the changing rooms. Using the handset the way a hunter uses a blind, she pretended to read as she studied him. He had his handset out too and was jabbing at the screen at irregular intervals. Playing a game, she gasped. I can tell you're looking at me. His eyes remained fixed on the device. She was surprised by how high and nasal his voice was for such a heavy man. Kira let the hand holding her handset fall across her knee. I'm studying my opponent. He tapped the screen decisively and looked up. Well, I'm studying you too. That makes sense, since we'll be trying to kill each other in a few minutes. He blanched at her bluntness. That was good. Fear was the most direct route to the exit door. He shifted uncomfortably in his seat, but said nothing. She wasn't sure if he was reacting to the emotional pressure of her gaze or the physical pressure of the chair arms. She wanted him to speak before, again before she said anything else. Finally, he set the handset down and faced her squarely. I'm right, you know. Kira considered the claim. Did he mean that it was right to study her, but it was wrong of her to study him? She decided to remain silent rather than asking for clarification. He rubbed the bill of his cap and continued. You people should have paid for my house. I paid my premiums and you owed me for that. All this fancy talk about exclusions and uncovered causes and such don't change none of that. I don't care what the arbitrators say. Kira remained silent. She'd long believed that a sense of being wronged and the resulting righteous anger was the most common reason for a citizen to duel with a corporate professional, although she knew that Diana disagreed. Her second often said that sheer desperation was the most common motivator. The amount involved was 75,000 unification dollars, probably a, best, a bit less than two years of his income. Unless there was something not apparent in his public profile, it wasn't enough money to risk his life over. He was a windmill mechanic with decent pay and steady work, and even if he had to declare bankruptcy at his age, the loss would be survivable, or at least more survivable than a trip to the dueling field. 
So this was probably just righteous anger. She settled on an approach. I agree. What the arbitrators say doesn't matter to us now. He seemed to soften a bit and she was hopeful. If he felt someone who mattered had hurt him, he might see this as a practical matter rather than an emotional one. And in any purely practical calculation, facing her made no sense at all. She pressed the point. I understand why you're angry, but you have to decide if the money is worth dying for. She noted his twitch at the word dying. He was scared. Good. Kira felt a stirring of pity but let it pass. Her voice was soft. Do you want to tell me why this is so important? The handset slipped in his hand. He caught it before it could fall and then fumbled slightly as he put it in his bag. He sat in the chair, hanging his head and staring at his lap. Finally, he spoke. Why would you do this to me? He looked up at her, his face filled equal parts with pain and accusation. I was a good customer for nearly five years. I always paid on time. I didn't do nothing wrong. I didn't try to cheat you. Now you say all this stuff about how the standard flood coverage isn't enough and I needed the expanded flood coverage. His look became positively plaintive. Why would you do this? Kira knew the real answer. Most of the time, there wasn't much argument about a claim. It was either clearly covered or clearly not covered. However, a small percentage of cases were not so clear cut. Insurers forced those cases to arbitration and the only appeal to arbitration was trial by combat. If an insurer could win in an unusually high number of the disputed cases, that was one way to post unusually high profits. And unusually high profits meant unusually high rewards for the people who produced them. So, the company pressed as hard as possible to win the disputed cases. Unfortunately, the real answer was not helpful at the moment. Instead, Kira drew on nearly a decade of stage training and launched into her reply. I can't do anything about that. She needed to put some verbal distance between herself and her employer. Today, it's just you and me with a decision to make. Her eyes and pose softened slightly, showing him something she hoped looked like genuine sympathy. She watched carefully for feedback. There might have been a slight trembling in his hands, but she wasn't sure. She pressed on. Is it worth it to us to fight this out? Or should we just call it a day, go home, and live our lives? Suddenly, his shoulders stiffened and his head snapped up to face her. But I'm right, he said. I have justice and I have righteousness on my side. That counts for more than all you think you know. Your bosses are crooks and my mama says that the righteous shall triumph in the end. She was gratified at his use of your bosses instead of you. The less he saw her as personally responsible, the easier it would be to get him to walk away. He was determined, but Kira could feel that it was brittle. His expectation for the triumph of righteousness was probably a core belief, and as such, it had to be handled carefully. If she challenged it directly, he would probably just dig in harder. He rubbed the visor of his cap again. It looked like it had never been washed. Suddenly, Kira realized where he was wearing a hat so at odds with the rest of his outfit. Or at least, she had a good guess. She took a chance. So, why are you wearing your lucky hat? His eyes widened. She tilted her head, inviting a response. He pulled the hat off and looked at it as he spoke. I wore this hat for every game of the playoffs and the World Series when the Cubs won. It worked for me then, and I'm thinking it will work for me now. So, 
She left a few seconds of silence before she continued. Justice and righteousness alone might not be enough. He continued staring into his cab. She'd done what she could to undermine his confidence and carried him this far. Now she needed him to reconsider the risks. She began with the question, how many people have you killed? He looked startled. Why, why no one. I ain't never killed nobody in my whole life. She assumed a look of world weariness. I've killed 14. She left a strategic pause on the dueling field. His eyes widened. How do you live with yourself? She shrugged slightly. It's my job, and I do it. The truth was more complicated than that, but the truth behind her motives was no more helpful than the truth about her employer's business strategy. What mattered was that she'd heard him, she'd made him question his belief in the efficacy of a just cause, and she just showed him that for her, killing him was all in a day's work. If he was going to crack, he was going to crack now. He raised his head and looked at her defiantly. His voice was low and almost menacing. I know what you're trying to do. You're trying to make me quit. You're probably just as scared as I am. You probably made up all that stuff about them people you killed. You probably never killed nobody on the field. You just make them quit here, don't you? Well, let me tell you this. I ain't scared. I'm going to fight you and I'm going to kill you. What do you think about that? Kira watched the outburst with an expression of cool detachment while inwardly cursing herself. She had pushed him too hard and too soon. She should have let him talk more and stew longer. She should have appeared more sympathetic in the beginning, but there was no help for any of that now. Her opponent was still glaring at her, waiting for a response. I think that's your right. She was surprised at how steady her voice was. We will meet and you will have your shot. But remember, she fixed him with her best predatory look. You chose this. All right, this is the beginning of my novel, Fangs for Nothing, which is the first thing I ever, first novel I ever attempted to write. Chapter one, where Vinny goes to karaoke night. Blood, I thought about blood all the time. I would lay in my bed, staring at the ceiling, thinking about how I wanted to sink my fangs into somebody. Blood, blood, blood. I needed blood. However, the whole predatorily attacking people thing bothered me. I've never been much of an athlete. I just couldn't see myself chasing down girls in alleyways. And if they could outrun me, that would be so embarrassing. <laughs> to satisfy the urge, I would sneak upstairs in the middle of the night when I knew my mother was thawing hamburger for the next day and drink the puddle of blood that it had collected in the tray. <laughs> this tactic for survival was less than successful. I spent my first decade as a vampire, sickly and weak. Things would turn around though. Eventually, I did get to taste the nectar of human life. The first time I tasted human blood was a Wednesday karaoke night. It started like many other nights of my unlife. When I was sleeping peacefully, my mother came down the stairs and yanked open the curtains of my tiny basement window. My skin blackened like a steak after a week on the grill and let out a puff of smoke. I scurried under the covers to avoid bursting into flames. You've been smoking down here, my mother accused. I held the covers over my head, hoping I had completely covered my exposed skin in time to avoid becoming an unholy fireball. Mom, what have I said about coming into my room? 
I really shouldn't have whined like that. I was 27 years old and dead. <laughs> By the time he was my age, Vlad Dracula had crossed the Danube and was busy devastating Serbia. I bet he didn't whine at his mother. Besides, I don't smoke. I don't care what you've been doing, it stinks down here. You really need to clean up this room. Get up and get out of the house. Did you even look for work today? Since my ungodly transformation, my parents have been in denial about my condition. Sure, they might admit I had a nasty sun allergy, but anything beyond that got conveniently edited out of the reality. Plus, they were really getting sick of having me around the house, especially now that my sister was heading to college. At least they couldn't complain about the food bills. I didn't have much luck with human food. Mom, you know I have a sun allergy. You have a disability. You have to learn to overcome it. Now how are things on the job front? I guess I can take a look tomorrow. I just said it to make her leave. There was no use arguing. We'd have this, had the same conversation on and off for the last 10 years. After my high school had let me graduate on accumulated credits due to my illness. You know, I just thank you because I love you. If she really loved me so much, why did she try to douse me in sunlight? I'm sure Vlad Dracula's mother never tried to do anything like that. Or if she did, she never got a chance to do it twice. <laughs> yeah, Mom, I love you too. The weird thing about my mother is I actually did believe she loved me. Sure, her attempts at immolation seemed contrary to that opinion, but they were half-hearted at best. Attempted murder was just the way she dealt with her subconscious resentment of my basement dwelling. Or at least, that's what my friend Ernie said, and he knows things. He's a bartender. <laughs> she left without another word, and without closing the curtain. This left me with two equally sucky choices. I could remain in bed hiding under the covers for two hours until the sun went down, or I could try to close the curtain while staying out of direct sunlight. If I tried to close the curtain, there was a chance of exposing myself to too much sunlight and dying. But if I stayed under the covers, there was a serious risk my mother would come down the stairs and harass me until I came to supper. I decided to risk it. I leapt up, holding my blanket in front of me like a shield, and ran for the window. Halfway there, I stepped on my acoustic guitar, putting my foot through the shell. <laughs> if only my parents had bought me the solid body Stratocaster I'd asked for, this wouldn't have happened. When I lifted my foot, the guitar came with it. The neck of the guitar hooked in my blanket and pulled it from my hands. Sunlight hit me straight in the face. I struggled to close the curtain as my skin blistered and smoked. Off balance and desperate, I frantically lunged and jerked the curtain closed. Overbalanced, I fell into a heap of my dirty underwear. I might have passed out from the pain, but the undead funk rising from my dirty underwear acted like smelling salts, jolting me awake. I really hate the summertime. In the winter, it was dark by the time my mom got home from work, and she couldn't try to kill me with the sunlight. After I removed my foot from the guitar, I stood up. My burned skin crackled like aluminum foil. I walked to my bed, knelt down, and felt around until I found a one-gallon baggie filled with moist soil. I pulled it out and smiled. Just what I needed to take my pain away. I reached into the bag, pulled out a big handful of dirt, and sprinkled it all over my bed. I got the idea from Bram Stoker's Dracula. Not the book, the 1992 movie starring Gary Oldman. In the movie, Dracula has to travel with soil from his native Transylvania. Since I was born and raised in suburban Omaha, and there are plenty of gardens here, it wasn't hard to get a few handfuls of dirt. And in this rare case, it turned out the legends were right. The soil did have a restorative property, which I needed to use quite often given my general sickliness and my mother throwing open the curtains with wild abandon. Mom always got annoyed my sheets were so dirty. In the last 10 years, our family has gone through three washing machines. 
Once I had an evening cover, even covering of soil on my sheets, I slipped off my jammies and climbed naked into the dirty bed. The moist soil felt good, like cool tendrils soothing my burned skin, like a cool shower on a hundred degree day. My anxiety level dropped, the pain left me. I flipped over, covering my back in the cool soil. I took a breath and my nostrils filled with the earthy perfume of topsoil. Dirt, moss, roots, worms. Covered in dirt, I glowed with calm well-being. I luxuriated in the soil of my birthplace for almost half an hour. And then I went to the bathroom and washed all that crap off my body. As I was showering, I noticed the water wasn't running down the drain very fast. Dad would have to call Roto-Rooter again. The soil didn't do too much for the drainage in the basement shower either. I brushed my teeth. As a vampire, I'm pretty sure I don't have to worry about tooth decay. I haven't had a cavity in the last 10 years, and after my ungodly transformation, all my fillings fell out and my enamel regrew, which freaked out my dentist. <laughs> but trust me on this, being undead gave me wicked bad breath. And maybe it was drinking from raw hamburger trays. My mother had placed a basket of clean underwear in my room, along with a note to put them away. 10 years out of high school and she still treated me like a teenager. I located a pair of jeans and a t-shirt that weren't too smelly. I slipped on my watch. It was about an hour until sundown, an hour until I could escape the house. Vinny, honey, my mother's voice came down the stairs. Are you going to come to dinner tonight? I don't really want to, I yelled back. I could eat human food. I mean, it wasn't poison or anything, but it provided me with no sustenance and often made me sick to my stomach, especially cooked meat. You should come up and join your family. Why did she always want me at dinner? She knew I couldn't really eat. But now she'd started in. She wasn't going to give up. She would badger me until I came to dinner. And if I didn't come to dinner, she would come down and badger me more. Okay, mom, I'll be right up. I climbed up the basement stairs with little enthusiasm, stopping at the top. The stairs opened into our kitchen, stopping at the... The stairs opened into our kitchen, and already the smell of cooking meat was making my stomach jump. I held my breath. Yes, vampires breathe. But it's not because we need huge amounts of oxygen or anything. It's because we have a keen sense of smell, which doesn't work without taking in air. Also, see how long you can talk without breathing. I'm good at holding my breath, though. My record is two hours. After that, I get bored. <laughs> From this side of the kitchen, I could see the dining room curtains were closed, but most of the kitchen gleamed with the burning white sunlight. My mother had left the blinds open above the sink. I edged around the outside of the room, pressed against the wall commando style, aware any misstep could be my last. When I reached the kitchen blinds, I yanked them shut, blocking out the deadly beam of light. Our dining room was a typical suburban model, complete with china hutch and oversized oak table. It seemed small with the curtains drawn, but I wasn't about to complain. Mom, Dad, and Jennifer were already seated. They spoke excitedly about something, but when I approached the doorway, they abruptly stopped. They all looked up at me. What? I asked. Hello, Vinny, my boy. My dad always talks like that, calling me son or my boy. I'm told it sounds creepy if you aren't used to it. We were just discussing your sister going to college in the fall. She got her acceptance letter to Yale today. Not that we love you any less, my mother chirped. You just have a different path from your, for your life, of course. Still, we feel like it's appropriate, an appropriate time to celebrate your sister's accomplishments. She received some important news today. Yeah, whatever, I said magnanimously. Yale, huh? Must have been hard to get into. 
Jennifer smiled at me. Yes, I owe it all to you, big brother. One of the most important parts of the application is your personal statement essay. I wrote about how I needed to, to go to a good school like Yale because I would have to one day take care of my deadbeat older brother. Hey! I may have implied you are mildly retarded. You little brat. Vincent Price Lester, my mother said. Don't talk to your sister that way. Silence prevailed for a moment as Jennifer and I stared across the table, daring each other to make the next move. In the kitchen, the timer started to beep. Mom and Jennifer went to the kitchen to get the food. My mom and dad are socially conservative. They believe in traditional gender roles. They hated that I lived in the basement, and I'm still surprised they wanted Jennifer to go to college. I don't think dad would even let mom work, except he likes money. Left alone with me, dad felt it necessary to make conversation. Vinny, my boy? What have you been doing today? Oh, a little of this and that, I said. Jennifer chose that moment to walk in with a bowl of peas. Mom said Vinny slept all day. Dad shook his head. It's that stupid bar you're always going to. He paused while he thought of the name. Ernie's, I don't want you going there anymore. But Dad, I'm 27, I'm an adult. I don't care how old you are. You're living under this roof and until you can go out and get a job like your mother and I, until you can act like an adult, you can't expect to be treated like one. Mom and Jennifer finished setting out the food. The pork chops were burned. I could smell them across the table. I used to love pork chops, but now they smelled like rotten corruption. My stomach heaved just a little. I stood up. I don't think I want dinner after all. My father stood. He already had a napkin tucked into his pants. Sit down. You are not excused from this table. You'll at least stay while I say grace. He thumped the table for emphasis and the napkin fluttered to the floor. I sat. My father returned to his seat. Oh, Heavenly Father, bless this food and the people who sit around this table. Deliver us from evil. I started to squirm. I'm not sure if there really is a God, but if he does exist, there's a precedent that he's not really on my side. Jesus might love the little children, but he was silent on the subject of blood-sucking fiends. Not that I ever sucked any blood, unless you include looking the hamburger tray, but I was looking forward to doing it someday. What do you think, Vinny? While my mind had turned to theological matters, my father had finished blessing our meal. He was asking me a question. What? He shoved a fork full of burned pork chop in my face. Do you want to try a chop? My stomach crawled up into my throat as the piece of burned meat hovered next to my face. My father should have known better. He knew I couldn't stand cooked meat. He might as well have shoved a lump of kryptonite at Superman. My body reacted without thinking. My arm went up at impossible speed, knocking the fork and chop out of my father's hand. The pork chop bounced off two walls before skidding to a greasy halt. The fork embedded itself two inches into the plaster of the dining room wall. My father stood. What the hockey sticks do you think you're doing? Your mother worked hard to prepare this food for us. I'm sorry, you were waving it in my face. It was reflex. She works all day and comes home to fix your dinner, and this is how you show your appreciation? I said I'm sorry. That's not good enough. Go to your room. Fine, I said, standing from the table. I didn't want to eat your stupid dinner anyway. Mom looked ready to cry. She didn't like it when Dad and I fought. Nice going, butthead, my sister said as I left the room. <laughs> On the way through the kitchen, I stole a 20 from my mom's purse. I know, I'm a low life. Whatever, I'm broke, and my parents had enough money to fly to Florida last year to see the Huskers play. <laughs> the weirdest thing about me made it into a creature of darkness? Okay, the second weirdest thing after the whole lusting after blood and bursting into flame in the daylight thing is being able to feel the sunset. The feeling is hard to describe, it's disorienting. It doesn't hurt or anything, it's a jolt I never quite expect. Like walking into a screen door when you think it's open. 
I think that's where the whole vampires waking up at sunset thing comes from. If my mom didn't make me every day, the feeling of the sunset would. I'd also get a bit of a rush. I also get a bit of a rush when the sun goes down. For a few minutes, I actually feel like a superhero with fangs. All right, what I'm going to read for you guys is the first part of a short story. Uh, it's in second or third revision, and it's my homage to Elmore Leonard. If he were to be able to take Raylan Givens and turn him into a, uh, a mage or a warlock, what, what that might look like. The heralded Warren wasn't about to lop his own penis off. He was the greatest living wizard next to his mentor, Onlik, and somehow he found himself pressed against the portal, static electricity tugging at the hairs of his naked body. He studied the inch of his exposed olive skin locked into place along the portal's shimmering wall and determined his magic, no matter its glory, wavered under the weight of hubris. His had finally caught hold of him, both literally and figuratively. Standing in a barren field, he looked to the horizon and knew that golden rays soon would beat back the hues of night. With daybreak, the guardian spell he had raised to protect little Anya would fade away. Warren had neglected his responsibility as a martial mage. This certainly hadn't been the first time, but if he didn't get back to the girl before dawn, it would be the worst of his transgressions for Enya, him, and the realm. Only once before he had he protected a witness of such lofty stature, but on that occasion, the witness hadn't been a defenseless nine-year-old princess caught in a political scandal. The girl had been too smart for her own good. She had stumbled upon her uncle Kretcher's plans to ship another round of slaves out of his lands. Apparently, he had been a pro apparently he had been profiting from this arrangement from for some time. Enya could have remained quiet, waited out her visit to Ponape, but by that time the plan would have been set in motion. No, to her credit, as soon as the enchanted maps were rolled up, she understood the ramifications of Kretcher's actions. Then she bolted for help, his help. If he were Enya, he, would have, he wouldn't have taken the map. The damn thing was enchanted with coded symbols, showing, but more pointedly obscuring, the Sundu trafficking routes. By her account, the routes were almost exclusively on the Duke's lands. By her account was the critical piece. The map's codes could only be translated by those present for the conversation, even if he or members of the Adon Council, for that matter, could decipher the code, the positions would shift and symbols change for each viewer. In fact, she had explained the positions to him several times only to have his view of them change shortly thereafter. Not entirely unlike the blur and depth, depth confusion he sensed from this claustrophobic proximity to the portal shimmering wall. Warren closed his eyes, exhaled. He looked to the inky horizon again. Poor girl, he said in a low voice. When, he took possession, when she took possession of that accursed map, she had made herself a fixture in the Adon war room. Once they sorted out the veracity of her claims, they would have her assist in redrawing a new conventional one they could all read. If Enya were to never arrive, the council would still convene, 
But without its star witness, the trial would likely devolve into brother against brother civil war. If any were to die, her father's counsel would likely not find evidence of Kretcher's direct involvement. If the, girl, if the girl were to die, Warren might as well strip himself of his marshal's arms, the only life he'd ever known, and take the teacher's brown cloak. That'd be a terrific idea for everyone involved. Shit, 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 he said. He wanted to hit something, but that wasn't an option. He tensed, putting his neck muscles on the verge of cramping and pulling some other unmentionables. Instead of guarding Enya properly and getting her back to Aiden, as was his duty, he had snuck out, of his usual e out for his usual evening bourbon and found the local flavor, well, inviting. Unfortunately, this particular variety was, unknown to him at the time, his mentor's young wife. And while he feared the implications of the girl's death, the possibility that he had been responsible for Onlik's wife's infidelity, all while shaking his, shirking his duty, frightened him nearly as much. When not protecting and serving, Warren wandered through life plagued by the temptation of the world's superficial offerings. He preferred it that way. Life otherwise was so serious. His skill provided the necessary means to do what he must so he could sample the simple pleasures and in great variety. Only in Onlik did he have a true friend. To disappoint, to hurt Onlik, wounded him. Surely Onlik hadn't, re hadn't recognized him. He had used no identifiable magic. This did little to comfort Warren. But perhaps Onlik's ignorance would spare him a double blow. His mentor, though, would have to wait. Saving Enya was his immediate need. He was the great Warren. He could escape at any time. He only needed to recite the spell of woman's making. But somehow he couldn't, or better put, he wouldn't. He had read it from the book of Farage a hundred times. Turning herself into a woman was indeed the best spell to carry out the clandestine reconnaissance required to charm and win another woman's favor. The spell would clear him of this trouble straight away. In essence, he would no longer be a man, and in this situation, his manhood was quite clearly the problem. But no, this had been the one spell he had refused to imbue. For what good would it do to learn the true nature of woman? No, he would never embrace it as part of him. He would continue reciting it from the text he kept in his cloak, and when it served his needs to sneak into a woman's academy, the cottage of a lonely farmer's wife, or in this case, the tavern room of an unsuspecting traveler. Even then, though it so often served his needs, he refused to pay enough attention to even commit it to memory. And where was his cloak with the spell? <laughs> Indeed, left in the care of his momentary affections, a casualty of haste. Again, Onlik. Warren had run in the, ho run in the hopes of protecting his identity and his pride. So now he stood naked, in naked, self-induced embarrassment, manhood caught in a portal. Bugs bit at the back of his knees and down his calves. He stretched but couldn't, couldn't quite reach the spot. I am the great Warren, he said, laughing almost maniacally. He looked again at the, shivering, the shimmering swath in the air that was the portal. It was like progressive coats of stain where one could see and pass through to and from here and there. When the final coat was applied, the portal closed. 
Oh, the portal would unlock itself in time, freeing him to call another gateway to return to his cloak and ultimately Enya. Problem was, he'd seen the portal's future path. It wouldn't free him before daybreak and she would be dead by then. Enya's Sundu, Enya Sundu assassins would enjoy nothing more than tearing her limb from limb. That way she would never testify against them or the king's brother who sponsored the tra their trafficking of children. And there would be so much to answer for. He was the great Warren. Fuck the spell. He would find another way to get out of this, another way to get back to Enya. Hours of the prairie's breeze blowing against his bare ass had gone by and Warren still had not arrived at a solution. He was so locked in thought, so focused on his predicament, that he realized too late he had neglected to shield himself from the world. Well, anyone surprised at what we found here came a familiar voice behind him. Warren looked over his shoulder to identify who it belonged to. I've never seen anything reflect, reflect the moon so brightly. <laughs> so, several failed attempts with not, notwithstanding, Warren again attempted to shrink his penis to the point he could free himself from the portal. He recalled the spell and hoped for a different result, hoped he could catch some anomaly. After a moment, the inch that was once exposed disappeared from the naked eye. Slowly, gently, he, back, he rocked back from the portal. Flesh he couldn't see tensed. He still could not budge. Still tethered, he whipped his head from side to side, locating and then studying the men and their horses as they approached. Even before they drew their horses down the hill, Warren could tell from the black cows and the animal's double bar bit rings that the Sundu had searched him out. I recommend you stay back, Warren shouted. I'm still quite dangerous. A chorus of laughter sounded behind him, followed by Bantiran's familiar voice. And you look it. But the men's action belied their words because they flared out surrounding him and kept several horse lengths back. Two of them cocked their crossbows. Bant Batir and spat and leaned against his saddle for a better look. Well, press me in an Iron Maiden. If it isn't the miraculous Warren, you're in a bit of a predicament, aren't you? And what of Enya? She's likely in a worse spot. You won't get to her and don't give me trouble. I'm in a foul mood. I see that as well as your ass hanging out. So I don't think you're in any position to tell me what to do. Nor now that we have Enya surrounded, Bantir snorted. I bet she'll be ours by first light. You think this is all coincidence? The portal static electricity crackled against his skin. He twisted for a better look at Batir. His beard stubble grazed the portal and itched like a swarm of bees. His hamstrings shivered involuntarily. This predicament, his whole situation had suddenly become dangerous. Warren cursed himself for his carelessness. He had walked right into the Sundew's trap. Warren drew in a breath, stealing himself so he could conjure his customary bravado. Batirn, I would think you would know better by this point. Nothing happens unless I allow it. What I know is that she's dead because your dick is more important than your word. And this time around, Warren, we have our own mage. Warren craned his neck and looked to the man at Batirn's right. Sure enough, the man's face was covered in black tattoos. By sight, Warren couldn't make out the specific tattoos denoting his order but he felt the man out and could sense the stylings coursing through his blood. He was a Dianon. The order was most certainly skilled and methodical. He would never be the type to get his dick caught in a portal. <laughs> <laughs> 
Warren wondered whether the mage would thank him in a compromised enough position to make a move. So I see, but does he have the stones to actually attack, Warren said. Dianons are generally good for patching people up, not ripping them apart. The Dianon pulled a uh, coin pouch concealed under the neck of his robes and shook it. I think I would wager my stones against yours right now. <laughs> Besides, every clan has their bad seed. It is with that knowledge of putting people back together that I rip them apart. And so, said Warren, gesturing his hands as, as if he were welcoming applause, starts the, pitch, the pissing match. Conjure your worst, but in fairness, I'll say that I've been reasonable. You're free to leave me be. Stay five seconds more, and I'll deal with your dead stench and I, until I can figure my way out of here. That's it, Batarin hissed, nodding to the Dianon mage. So, Warren thought, this mage wanted to slice through him. In situations like this, Warren preferred the power of simplicity. Timing would be everything. Warren believed he bettered his peers continually because he had a knack for the inner workings of cadence and spatial relationships. Why his getting caught in the portal was all the more surprising. <laughs> the mage clapped his hands together and started to mutter, Incessato. The man bit every syllable. His enunciation was methodical, measured. Good little dying on Warren, Warren's thought. He counted on it. Before the final syllable sounded, Warren thrust his hand toward the mage and shouted, Quas! The ground split, split beneath the horse on which the Dianon mage sat. The incantation spilled out of the mage's mouth, mouth as the horse teetered and fell. Warren then shouted, Trey. Magical slashes crackled through the air. Blood fanned and sizzled to nothing against the portal, leaving only the stink of iron. Warren finished with os. Screams and a pronounced mumble bellowed behind him. Warren glanced to Batirn, who remained upright on his mare. The assassin's face remained fixed in shock, eyes wide. His hand trembled and jerked for an instant before its weight was enough to pull the two halves of him apart. Warren whipped his head to the other side. Having been relieved of most of their arms, the two men who once brandished crossbows thrashed in their saddles. Their cries pierced the night like bat shrieks. Then Warren looked upon the, the most dangerous of the outfit. He had saved precision to neutralize him, just enough for the mage to admire. Pinned under his fallen horse, the Dinon's mage, mage's arms flailed, but this was a mere byproduct of the horse toppling. The real work had been getting the mage to sever his own tongue. And while Warren was an awesome spectacle, he wasn't perfect. After the adrenaline of the moment subsided, subsided Warren felt a trickle of warm wet smattered inside his right leg. <laughs> Our last one. So uh, thanks for, for coming tonight. One in four adults. Hey, honey. She watched him come in the front door and then turned her attention back to chopping steak, the bloody bits smearing the white cutting board with gore. How was it? He walked into the kitchen and hooked chopped green olives with one finger. Chewing, he took a spot at the other counter and unpacked his lunch. We have to talk. She put, the sink in the, or she put the knife in the sink, metal against metal. Frowning at the blood, she rinsed the blade. That sounds serious. She crossed the smooth wood floor to where the tea towels hung and wiped her hands dry. 
what's going on? Is there a problem? Yeah, well, his eyes grazed the cutting board, then moved back to her. Dr. Banks found something odd. Okay, she swallowed her voice to control it, took a deep breath, and tried again. So, the stomach biopsy. Normal. Good, she exhaled. He took out an empty yogurt cup and a plastic bag, throwing one in the recycler, the other in the trash. It's something else. Was there something else? She rubbed her upper lip. They'd been worrying about the biopsy for two weeks, and it was nothing but a relief that it had come back normal. She blinked. A mole? Hairs. Dr. Banks found some unusual hairs. She laughed. Hairs? Huh? <laughs> well, you are turning into an old bugger. He didn't laugh, and when she noticed, she clamped her mouth shut. Opening the bottom drawer of the oven, she pulled out a frying pan. Excuse me. She crossed in front of him and retrieved the cooking spray out of the spice cupboard. So, hairs, his cue to continue. They're unusual, like wolf hairs. <laughs> what? Dr. Banks thinks there's a small chance that we'll have to watch for lycanthropy. She placed the pan on the burner. Lycanthropy. He wasn't joking. You know there are genetic indicators. First of all, just because Peter Stumpf is the most famous werewolf in the werewolf books, and you're related, I don't think that means you're going to become a werewolf. He had enchanted belt, right? That's not a genetic indicator. We, you know we really don't know what happened there. Yes, we do. A bunch of poor villagers wanted his fortune and decided to kill him. You were lucky. His son ran for it. So was I. She grabbed a bowl of onions and threw them in the pan and turned on the burner, the bug zapping sound of the gas lighter igniting a flame. The kitchen smelled like a garage for a moment. He put a fiber bar and a banana in his lunchbox and put it on top of the refrigerator as the onions began to hiss. Lycanthropy isn't all that unusual. Really? One in four adults have hairs like this and don't even know it. She mixed the onions in the olive oil. He was looking intensely at her. No, she was pretty sure he was looking at the chunks of sirloin on the cutting board, which was disturbing. And he continued, usually nothing happens. They just have odd hairs, eyebrow hair, hair in their ears, up their nose. Are you, she pointed at him with a spatula. A small square of onion fell to the smooth wood floor. Are you thinking about eating this steak? I was thinking we needed to put the kettle on to rinse the cutting board after you put that in the pan. Good answer, usual answer. She buried the spatula and onions after another stir and handed him the kettle. He moved closer to her to fill it. So what I'm hearing is that you have some hairs that might indicate you could turn into a werewolf, but you probably won't. Yes. And I'm supposed to react to that, how? He lit a burner under the kettle. I don't know, how do you think I feel? I'm the one that might turn into a werewolf. <laughs> well, yeah, there's that. She fell like a heel. She kissed him on the forehead. So where do we go from here? She scraped the cuts of meat into the pan and the fragrance of onion and searing meat hit her nose in a cloud of culinary bliss. I'm supposed to take some pills for four months. On the counter where his lunchbox had been was a pill bottle as large as a telescope, Wolfsbane. You can get that at Walgreens? <laughs> Apparently. I take it four times a day, eight times during the full moon. Anything else? Sure. I should probably switch to a vegetarian diet. She turned off the burner and pursed her lips. 
Okay, I wish we had known that information a little sooner. It's supposed to help with any tendency toward bloodlust if I, you know, start changing. The tea kettle whistled. He wrapped the handle in a hot pad, put the cutting board in the sink, and poured away the blood. She put a lid on the top of the half-cooked steak and onions. That's a big change. She touched his arm. We'll make that work. Beans are awesome. An excellent source of protein, he quoted. <laughs> then we just watch. Well, Dr. Bank watches. In another six months, we're going to see if I have more wolf hairs, if my canines elongate. We'll do a DNA test, make sure that nothing's looking canine. We'll do that every six months. She stared at him. I don't know what to say. I want you to leave me. He grabbed her hands. You've got to leave me. Her chin jetted out. I'm not leaving you. Every six months is all insurance will pay for. What if I turn into a werewolf? What if I attack you, if I kill you? He pulled her close. She smelled him, the musky warmth. Life would be impossible without him. She sniffed and blinked. It's not certain you're going to become a werewolf. What if you're just the guy who looks like he could be a werewolf? She smiled, you know, unibrow, furry chest. You've always been that guy. We'll pay for an extra test in between each month if you like. I've got a little money put aside. There's no certainty, right? None. He stepped away from her, holding her shoulders. Don't you think it's too risky? You might become a werewolf, but you're always going to be the man I married. We're doing this together. If one in four adults have this, there has to be equipment at CarePro, right? Whatever wolves need. He cried and she cried for a time. The sun outside their kitchen window dimmed in earnest. Okay, sniffed. Okay, that's doable. It's a plan. Her eyes were red. The great illusion of normal was something she would work fiercely to maintain as much as she could. She could trust him to do the same. Unfortunately, it's raisin bran for supper and maybe ice cream. His hearty laugh relieved her. He was going to live regardless. Awesome. Just let me take my wolf's paint. Visit Adventures in Sci-Fi Publishing for show notes, links, reviews, special guests, videos, and more. Email us at adventuresinsci-fi-publishing at gmail.com. Sound effects from the Free Sounds Project. Music by Asymmetry, found at musically.com. No authors were seriously damaged in the making of this podcast. <laughs>